Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. This is the second in a series of four interviews with changemakers from Sharon Salzberg's new book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World, which offers a new perspective on how activism and meditation practice can uplift each other. These four individuals are making change on the ground and in real people's lives through activism, outreach, art, and policy. Our guest today is Michael Kink, the executive director of the Strong Economy for All Coalition, an organization of labor unions and community groups that work to support economic and racial justice for low-income and working people. Michael says that meditation has helped him become a better activist by making him more able to follow through with his values and aspirations. Let's listen to my conversation with Sharon and Michael. Okay, Michael Kink, thank you so much for joining us on Tricycle Talks. As you know, I'm here with Sharon Salzberg. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. Hi, Sharon. Hi, James. Hi, Michael. Hey, Sharon. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Okay, I'd like to start by talking about your work. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what our listeners about what the Strong Economy for All Coalition is? Sure. Um, Strong Economy for All Coalition is a coalition of labor unions and community groups that works on issues of economic, social, and racial justice. We do a lot of detailed policy work around state budgets, state taxes, wages and jobs, minimum wage campaigns, um, money and politics. And we work in a kind of concentrated way in New York City and New York State, but we also work in different parts of the country. We also advise the Center for Popular Democracy, which is a national network of community organizing base building groups. So we're involved in policy and budget and organizing fights, not just in New York, but really all over the country. Uh, pretty much uh, on behalf of low-income and working people, pretty much asking the wealthy and well-connected to pay more in taxes so that the folks that do the work and provide the backbone of the country have an opportunity at broader prosperity and a voice in democracy. So you're the executive director, and I'm just wondering what your journey to that organization was like. How did you get there? <laughs> well, uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. <laughs> How far back should we go? Uh, as far back as you like. It's... You know, I, I've been thinking that, you know, when I was young, like single digits young, uh, we were in a time very much like today with a lot of fights for racial and economic justice, a lot of fights for a voice of the people in the time when governments were under questioning. I grew up in a white neighborhood that kind of shift to a mixed race neighborhood that shift to an all black neighborhood uh, in the neighborhoods where Martin Luther King was organizing when he came north from Mississippi. And um, I saw a lot of the racist violence, the fire bombings, the, the, the attacks um, that um, you know, Dr. King said the people from Mississippi should come to Chicago to learn how to hate. And um, that kind of violence uh, was in my community, directed at my friends, the kids that I was riding bikes and playing baseball with, uh, you know, in the backyards and the street corners. I saw evictions. Uh, I, I also saw, you know, 
amazing, strong families, black, white, all, all, all different social classes, uh, trying to make it together. So um, I hoped from a young age to work in social justice, uh, to be a lawyer, to kind of fight for, uh, uh, for the public interest. I was a legal aid lawyer for five years in Harlem in the 80s and 90s. I worked for 13 years for Housing Works, the New York City AIDS group that was an offshoot of ACT UP, the direct action group. So did you, did you work with Charles King there? I did. You did. I worked very closely with Charles and Keith Kyler and Ginny Schubert and the folks that founded Housing Works. Yeah, they do great work. And uh, helped them sue Giuliani and Clinton, helped them to establish a strong presence in Albany and in Washington, did organizing all over the country with homeless people living with AIDS and HIV. In a time of pandemic, again, you know, similar to today, when in particular, low-income people of color, poor people, LGBT people were left out of advances in healthcare that other people who are more prosperous and more white were getting. You know, I just have to say, characteristic of Sharon's friends, you're doing 500 things, right? Just like <laughs> Sharon herself. I mean, I, when, I, when I was looking at all the things that you do, I thought, what do you ask this guy? I mean, there are just so many things. What I did wonder is, um, so obviously your activism uh, precedes your meditation practice, but how did your work change after you became a meditator? Well, um, you know, I came like, uh, uh, you know, some cohort of people uh, more firmly to meditation through recovery from chemical dependency, uh, alcoholism and addiction. And so basically, I was not doing that great of a job at being the activist and organizer I wanted to be because I was hampered by getting drunk every night till I passed out. And I was encouraged to pursue meditation practice as part of my recovery. I became a more stable person, person more able to follow through on my values and my aspirations. So it really kind of all happened together. You know, I had some opportunities in politics and policy prior to getting sober. Some of them I did okay at, some of them I completely blew. But since I've had this grounding in sobriety, uh, contemplative practice, being more attuned to values and building a life based on those values, I think that meditation has really been kind of a rock, a, a foundation of a lot of the things that I've been able to do working with mm -hmm. a broad range of communities. How did you and Sharon connect? Because Sharon is really into <laughs> democracy and activism and organizing, whether her admirers always know that about her or not. We, we had, uh, you know, friends, uh, a, a number of different Venn diagrams of circles of people that were involved in organizing and activism and politics. Honestly, I kind of knew her as a historical figure before I got to know her as a friend and a, a kind of fellow activist. So, uh, you know, I feel blessed to be able to work with her, but we came together in the trenches on getting people elected and pushing progressive policies and helping elected officials and organizers and people that want to make a change in society find some measure of strength and uh, resilience and uh, and ease and, and love in their lives. Yeah, Michael, I have this memory. I can't even remember the year. We were together in, uh, with crowds of people in some hotel ballroom, and 
New York City watching election results, which were really disappointing, even heartbreaking. And and we did a meditation, like right in the lobby or someplace. We found a corner. And that would be emblematic for me of how long a path it is to try to change society and, and how many times one has to find that resilience and even love for others that are not going to, it's not going to manifest in like immediate results and you just have to find it to keep on going. And being able to do it anywhere, like in the middle of chaos, in the middle of insanity, you know, in the middle of difficulty, whether it's street protests or bad election results, you know, it's always there and always available. So can you give us an idea, either one of you, um, it's always available. What do you do when you're in the thick of it and you find that you're stressed or burnt out, but you can't really stop because you're in the middle of it, say? What do you do? Well, I will honestly say one of my favorite ever moments we were in the office of a U.S. senator on the Hill in Washington. There were about uh, 150, 200 people occupying the office, chanting, protesting. I was there with Adi Barkin, who's an advocate on healthcare and people with disabilities. I was there with Linda Sarsour, who's a well-known civil rights activist. I was there with my friend Winnie Wong, who I met at Occupy Wall Street and has, have worked with since. And, you know, we were going in to talk to the senator and her staff, and there was so much going on. There was too much. And they all turned to me and said, Mike, you're, you're calm. Do something. <laughs> you know how to do this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, uh, what we did was we said meta. We, we sat at this table in the lobby of a senator's office. We held hands. And for ourselves, for our comrades, for our opponents, you know, for the senator we are about to meet with and her constituents, you know, we offered Meta. And I did not start out as the guy that other people's turned to to be calm in situations like that, you know? <laughs> like I, I, I became that way through practice and through being in community. And to be able to offer Meta explicitly, you know, may I be safe, may I be free from physical harm, may I be free from, uh, from, from physical suffering, may I be free from mental suffering, may I be happy and live at ease, you know, to offer that with this crew um, was because I am in community and because I work with a teacher, because I have, a, you know, a structure and a path to the practice which, you know, is really, really valuable. And, um, you know, I appreciate the ability to do that. Yeah, you know, I learned from Sharon to do meta wherever I am. Uh, I'm on this. Uh, Maybe we should say meta is loving kindness in case people don't actually know the word. <laughs> well, why don't you say a little more about it, Sharon, and taking it into our everyday lives, like the way Michael described. Well, meta is the Pali word, and it's usually translated as loving kindness, and it's exactly like Michael described it. It's it's shifting the way we pay attention. So like with ourselves, instead of going through the list of our flaws and faults one more time, it's a sense of offering or gift giving. We wish ourselves well. And, and with others, you know, you think about all the many beings we don't really see, we don't listen to, we, we just count in some way. And, and it's almost like shifting the way we pay attention. So we include rather than exclude. And, and even with an opponent, an antagonist, it's realizing that, oh yeah, those acts of disconnection and, and so on, they come from an inner state of some kind of pain or turmoil, and it would be a better world if, in fact, people could be free of that, everybody. And so 
it gets confused, I think, in modern times with giving in or being weak or just being sentimental, but it's really not that at all. You know, like the others we're interviewing, Michael appears in your book, Real Change. I hope you don't mind, Michael. I'm going to read a quote by you in Real Change. Before I came to Buddhism, I knew suffering was a part of life, but I had not acknowledged it at the deepest level as part of what we have and who we are. Could you say something more about that? Yeah, you know, um, I, I came of age as an organizer and activist during the AIDS epidemic. And there was so much suffering and the acknowledgement of suffering and the kind of conversion of suffering into moral force was so powerful. And I, I think like almost everybody in life, you know, before I came to Buddhism, I wanted to avert myself from suffering. I wanted to avoid suffering. I wanted to pretend that suffering, you know, wasn't there. And I think that in the most holistic and compassionate sense, to understand the full spectrum of suffering and to understand it as a destructive force and a constructive force, to understand it as something that really hurts, but that also offers the sort of energy and emotions to provoke change. I think for anyone that sort of has a some stereotype view of Buddhists of just like sitting back and being cool with everything, there are so many engaged Buddhists, you know, sort of taking action on suffering to acknowledge it, to work through it, to use it to power action for justice. And I think that, you know, Buddhism really gave me a broader perspective on that. And also to be able to empathize with the profound suffering of others. You know, I'm a white dude. Like, I have graduate degrees. Like, I have a, a good job. But to be able to actually be fully with people that are suffering, who are homeless, who have disabilities, people suffering profound racial, economic, social injustice, you know, to really put yourself on the line for others Again, to understand the depths of suffering is not easy to do, and having a spiritual guide to help kind of facilitate that understanding, I think, is really important and really practical. It really allows you to do more in the world. You know, Sharon, you talk about, in part anyway, you use Michael's story as an example of being honest about pain. What do you mean when you say being honest about pain? Well, I mean, I think it's everything, you know, that Michael just said. It's really, you know, when I, I did this thing for a while online, mostly on Twitter, although not exclusively on Twitter, which we called a Meta Minute, where we asked people to stop and just do loving kindness for the kids in cages at the border. And, you know, I got some amount of criticism, as one does when you do anything. You know, you're as bad as the people who just want thoughts and prayers. And uh, you shouldn't be doing this. You should be donating, which I already had. And you know, you shouldn't be doing this. This is like a waste of time. You need to take action. And what I would write in response was very much like what Michael just said, like, this is hard for me to look at. And I need to connect to something bigger to be able to keep looking at it. It's much easier to look away. And it's only when I look at it that I'm moved to take action. I'm not substituting loving kindness for taking action. I'm saying, it's not easy to take action in any kind of sustained way. And not only is the society built on distraction, but it's painful. 
uh, to feel that and to recognize what's going on. And so I really see these tools as a way of allowing us to be present. And it's not present in a way that's pompous in some way, you know, it's realizing our own vulnerability, which is what I think that that quotation from Michael was was about. You know, it's like some people think of compassion as this very hierarchical state, like I, whose life is so together and bestowing this kindness way down there on you because your life has fallen apart, which mine never could. But if you really understand from within how life can hurt, even though it's not the same circumstance and it's not the same degree, I think we find each other on an equal playing field almost, you know, there's just that recognition of, of vulnerability. Like one of the great gifts Michael's given to me is uh, introducing me and friends to the community of um, striking fast food workers, you know, and he kept saying, you've got to meet these people. They're so great, which I thought was fantastic. He didn't say you can really help them, you know, or, or you can bring them these tools, which might really help them. He's like, they are so great. They are so impressive. And they are. And one is also in my book. And I I remember one of the realizations I had listening to her and listening to other people in that movement was how you really have to feel into your own worth as a human being in order to say, no, you know, this is not all right. And what could be more in tune with the Buddhist teaching than recognizing your own innate capacity, your own innate dignity? And working from there, whether you're working in the meditative world, like I'm going to deepen this, I'm going to cultivate this, or you're working to assert it in the world, it's it's like the same understanding. And, and I was so moved by that. You know, I have a question for both of you. Either one of you can answer it. It just occurred to me, you said kids in cages on the border. In the current issue of Tricycle, we ran an interview with somebody who does work down at the border And he talked about the internment. And many Japanese-Americans consider this very personal because it happened to them. And so by the time the issue came out, we'd had COVID. And then we're in the midst of the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. And all of a sudden, I realized none of us was any longer thinking about the people on the border. There's so much pain. There are so many things happening. And the change is so accelerated it makes a person despair because all of a sudden I thought those people are still on the border in what we have to call cages. They're still there. And yet our attention has drifted elsewhere and to other very, very important matters like uh, civil rights, for instance, and police brutality. But there is just so much. And Michael, when you were talking about all the different things you do, it's endless. So I'm wondering how we hold that, how we not fall prey to despair, or when despair happens, how to make space for that. Either of you can address that. I mean, it's interesting, the word despair, because the thing I am thinking about maybe more than anything these days is the word faith. I wrote a book on faith 18 years ago, you know, and I keep referring back to it and thinking about it. And because um, faith in this in this sense, means connection. It's a profound sense of connection to our own inner strengths or to a bigger picture of life. And I see despair as the opposite, where all sense of connection is just severed. So in the state of overwhelm you described, James, I think is very real. And and what I do is, is I try to stay connected in the sense of acknowledging and realizing I need to pour my energy into a particular channel, maybe, or two. And try to be as supportive as I can beyond that. But 
it's not going to be that I'm as passionately engaged in everything. It's just not. And I try to remember that sense of faith that we just have to keep going and do the good that's in front of us, even if it seems very small, because that's how things will will really ultimately change and not to ever feel something is too small or too minor. But I really do have a sense of real loving kindness and blessings upon the people who are working in a whole variety of, of arenas that I'm I'm maybe not. And seeing what I can do in in uh, the arenas that I'm most ignited about. Like voting, for example, which is long been my big thing. I did a presentation once with Tim Ryan, the congressman, on mindfulness or something. And and I just kept saying to the audience, you've got to vote. You've got to vote. You, you can't sit back. You have to engage. You have to vote. And finally, Tim turned to me and he said, are you running for office or something? <laughs> well, you might. <laughs> and I said, no, but you are, you know. I share Sharon's perspective of finding the path through compassion to humility, to sort of understanding and perhaps sitting with our role as practitioners to find the right places to engage, to follow immigrant leaders on immigrant justice issues, to follow Black leaders on issues where Black Lives Matter, to follow workers who are fighting for economic justice. And then also through that compassion to that connection, And then find courage, like find a way to show up. You know, another thing that popped out of the news cycle this morning was big victories on transgender worker rights at the Supreme Court. I was arrested in front of the Supreme Court last October with hundreds of other people from all over the country. I helped a couple of folks get arrested for the first time, you know, that had never jumped in before, who were not you know, necessarily engaged at their soul on transgender rights issue. You know, there are immigrant organizers out on the streets for Black Lives Matter. There were Black Lives Matter leaders fighting to unlock the cages and to reunite families, right? The intersectionality of this work is really real. It's not just like a buzzword type of thing. And I think particularly for a broader community of practitioners, meditators, teachers, sitting in compassion and humility and finding a way to connect with direct action is really, really valuable. You know, those fast food workers needed the support of prominent people. They also needed like meditation in their lives, day to day, working low wage jobs. It's really stressful. Also, Buddhist teachers need to hear people on the front lines talking about the violence of poverty. The best speech that I ever heard about the reality of lived violence in low-income communities was from a grandmother working three fast food jobs, trying to keep her grandkids on the path that she wanted them to be on, dealing with the reality of a work life that included violence and intimidation. You know, that's a lived experience and we can all learn from each other if we stay connected with each other. I like the way you bring together the different arenas of action. For instance, locking people up on the border isn't totally unrelated to anti-black violence. I mean, they have their roots in racism, for instance. Um, So if you get at the root cause, you can move in different directions and at least sense some coherence to your actions to make things better. 
But one of the interesting things is that meditation had for so long a bad rap. Navel gazers was the accusation. But frankly, the people who meditate seem more engaged to me than anyone else. How do you guys feel about that? You know, I studied at Daibazatsu Zendo back in the 80s, and there was some calligraphy on the wall that said, I drink a cup of green tea and the bombers disappear. And I was like, is that really real? You know, <laughs> like, come on, is that real? Like I was a 20-something kid. And coming at it years later, if you have the practices, if you have the grounding, you can participate in ways that bring the whole moral force of the society forward. And there are all kinds of more skilled or less skilled ways to participate in all that. There are a lot of different ways in. But as a community, folks that seek out and develop meditation practices, contemplative practices, have so much to offer, a sort of a foundational piece of these movements, part by individual participation, part, you know, hopefully increasingly by working with leaders and participants, you know, to help each individual person that's working in these things, you know, find their own center and find their own best way of, of participating. So when I was a kid, like uh, navel gazing, like that was part of like popular, you know, conjecture. But I agree with you, you know, seeing people in the streets, seeing people lobbying, seeing people organizing, and, you know, folks that can find a center have a lot to offer to the movements that they're a part of. And if I ever get arrested doing direct action, everyone should know that it's because of Michael. <laughs> It'll be your fault, Michael. <laughs> well, he dreams of it, I think. And someday, you never know. Right time, right place. So thank you so much, Michael. Sharon, do you have anything more to ask or to say to Michael? No, it's fantastic to hear you, really. It's very inspiring. Yeah, very inspiring. Very nice to be together. Thank you. Thank you both so much, Sharon and Michael. It's great to have you on. You've been listening to Michael Kink, Executive Director of the Strong Economy for All Coalition, and Sharon Salzberg, author of Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.